Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, Thank you for the invitation. It's always good to talk about wisdom. I enjoy doing it because I wrote my dissertation on wisdom and uh, a book on wisdom. Uh, so I like wisdom. It's a nice topic to talk about. I want to start this evening with um, what I would call... Um, uh, the question of wisdom, what is it? And then kind of, or maybe to better to say, what isn't it? Uh, so to talk about some of the misconceptions about wisdom, and then to move from there to uh, looking at wisdom uh, as something that we receive from the Holy Spirit, and then we exercise by our reading of Scripture. Uh, that we learn about wisdom through this exercise as being something that is both uh, practical, like it's something that you're supposed to live, it's something that's supposed to affect your daily life, but it's also something that's contemplative. It's something that can actually inform your relationship with God and the way that you pray, the way that you interact with and are related to God. So, yeah, I would agree. It is an exceedingly important topic uh, and as exciting as economic and environmental concerns might be, I would put this probably just a few pegs above that uh, as far as importance for our human existence and what it means to be human beings created by God. So to begin then, what is wisdom or what isn't wisdom? Uh, there is, a, I would begin with an anecdote. Um, one of the things that uh, really started to interest me when I was an undergraduate at St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota, was uh, East Asian studies. So um, they actually have a quite uh, developed East Asian studies department. You can learn a lot about Chinese history, a lot about Buddhism, the Far East, the different religions and philosophies of uh, both China, Japan, um, Eastern Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, okay? So as an 18-year-old, I was infatuated with this. I found it to be remarkably interesting, and it was something that was very different from my background, what I had thought uh, about things growing up. Um, so I wanted to explore the ideas of these religions, and I was looking uh, for something that I thought that I couldn't get by practicing my Catholic faith, which was this kind of hidden wisdom, this 
ethereal kind of wisdom. I wanted to be enlightened. I wanted to receive this kind of wisdom. And I, I would call this a wisdom misconception because at least for me, and I, I think there are for a lot of uh, undergraduates still and people that I interact with in ministry, there is this conception that wisdom is this ethereal uh, abstract quality, that it's something that you have to go off to a far uh, high mountain and that there's a man up there with a wispy beard uh, that he's meditating in a Buddhist temple and that he will give you this secret of wisdom. That's kind of the idea that I was working with, with wisdom, all right? And I think there are a lot of people who might be similar in that regard. It never really occurred to me though that I had been given wisdom already because I was confirmed. We, we are given wisdom through the sacraments. There is, that is to say, we are given a perfection of the soul by which we can see God's plan and God's purpose unfolding in the world. This, I was completely oblivious to this fact. And I think a lot of people can be uh, within the church, uh, within society, that we already are given this possibility of relating to God, to knowing God and his plan and purpose. So we are given this through the Holy Spirit in the sacrament of confirmation. And it was something that I only by turns really came to understand in my experience in China. So I went and I studied for a semester there, and then I volunteered with the Peace Corps. I got very interested in different kinds of Buddhism. I visited these temples. I went up to this holy mountain. It was called Umeishan, the westernmost holy mountain in Buddhism in southwestern China. I go up there, I'm hiking all the way up. I get above the cloud lines. There's a big temple up there, it's beautiful. There are some monks up there in the orange robes. And then I go a little bit past this temple and there, behold, was the souvenir stand. You could get your picture taken with the monks. You could get your little uh, trinkets, that, um, the, the little rattles for meditating, for Shinto meditation and so forth. You could go up there and also uh, on the other side of the mountain, I found there was a funicular, like a cable car. So I spent all day hiking up, but you could also just take the express on the other side of the mountain. And the reason why I bring all that up was because my, um, let's just say my bubble was burst a little bit. I was, I was looking for something that was this, going on this big quest for wisdom. But what I found was the fact that there was the very same uh, kinds of uh, lackluster elements that I was finding in you know, my own life, the very, the very banal kind of components of my own life, they were also there with these well-meaning Buddhist people as well. There wasn't something that was completely secret. They didn't have the secret of life simply because they were Buddhist. Uh, so this began a kind of process by which I reflected on the fact that this wasn't uh, something that was a matter of going on a far-off quest. Getting wisdom wasn't something that was a matter of unlocking the secret of the universe. And when I spoke to my Chinese friends, they, they reinforced this whole thing for me. 
They were actually embarrassed by their parents and their grandparents who went to make these incense offerings at the temple because they found them to be superstitious, old-fashioned, and so forth. So I started to think more about this after having, talk and talk, uh, having spoken to my friends there. And when I returned to the United States, when I finally got back, then I talked to my parish priest, and he was the one who pointed out this obvious thing. I had already been given wisdom, and I had not yet exercised it. I had not yet practiced the wisdom. So one of the things about this that might be shocking, was shocking to me when I was 22 years old, was the fact that my grandmother and my mother, by going into the church and praying before God, praying the rosary, thinking about the mysteries of the, our salvation, the ways in which God has revealed himself through his son, through his blessed mother, by thinking about these things and praying about them, my grandmother and my mother were growing in wisdom. They were understanding more than me who had gone on this great quest and had studied philosophy and so forth. They, understand, they understood more than I did the reality of the fact that God has a plan and purpose and that this plan and purpose for our salvation can be glimpsed, it can be seen by human beings. And it is through the gift of wisdom that we are enabled to do so. That is the core of what wisdom is, the gift of wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Now, we speak about wisdom in the church in some different ways. Uh, so this is also kind of a preliminary point to make, what we call analogous terms. Okay, so there are some words that we use that have uh, different, though related, meanings or senses. Okay, so for example, healthy, right? I can say, I am healthy. It's not true, but I could say it. I am healthy. Uh, bran flakes are healthy. Running is healthy. Brother Charles, if you've ever met him, he loves to run. He's very healthy. Okay, so he, uh, let's call Brother Charles, who's a Dominican who sometimes serves here at the parish. He eats bran flakes in the morning, which are healthy. What we mean by that is the bran flakes have something in them, like riboflavin and bran and all these vitamins and minerals, which conduce to, they make possible good health in Brother Charles. All right? When Brother Charles goes running, that's a healthy activity. What that means is it builds up his cardiovascular fitness, it helps his uh, corpuscles, uh, like expand so his blood flows better and so forth, which again, it's an activity that conduces to health in Brother Charles, the human being, okay? So the state of health in a human being, in this example, is the primary fundamental sense of healthy. And then when we say healthy of breakfast cereal or an activity, those are secondary senses. They're analogous, they're related, but they're a little bit different. So when we're talking about wisdom and being wise, this is similar. There is one who is wise, that is God. 
God is the one who is truly wise, who has wisdom. What does this mean? It is the self-knowledge of God, is the knowledge that God has of himself and of all things that he has created. So God knows all, and in considering it, he has wisdom in the fullest sense. But, as I mentioned, God shares his wisdom with us. There is something that is called the divine gift of wisdom through the Holy Spirit. And that wisdom that we are given through the Holy Spirit in the sacrament of confirmation is, as the catechism defines it, the ability by which we are able to see God's plan and purpose unfold in the world. Now, there are a bunch of other senses that we could talk about wisdom, but these are the two most important for this evening. We have God's wisdom, which God shares with us, his human children, whom he has created. So when we're looking at this definition that we're given by the church about what wisdom is, the gift of wisdom, the Holy Spirit, it's good to notice the fundamental word here is sight, okay? That we see God's plan and purpose. That wisdom is a matter of seeing, which is a little bit different from knowing just mentally. It's a little bit different from uh, a kind of study. So one of the things about wisdom that it's differentiated from knowledge, all right? So being, knowing a bunch of things is not the same thing as being wise, all right? What is the difference? Well, if I could put it into a pithy little saying, uh, it's a matter of knowledge to know that a tomato is a fruit. Taxonomically, I guess, biologists, you could uh, verify this with them. I forget this from my third grade knowledge of science. But wisdom, or uh, wisdom, uh, the, that tomato is a fruit. Now, though I know that a tomato is a fruit, it's a matter of wisdom, understanding, to say that I know that you don't put tomatoes in a fruit salad. So I might know the fact that a tomato is a fruit, but I'm not going to put it together with pineapple and strawberries and serve it to you for breakfast, because we just don't do that. So it's this kind of seeing and understanding that is usually spoken about in terms of wisdom. Um, another uh, anecdotal example, perhaps uh, more directly related to God that, than the fruit salad example, when I was a seminarian, I was sent to Kenya to do mission work. And when I was uh, there I, for a summer, about three months, I had the opportunity to go uh, for a little weekend, kind of getaway vacation to the Masi Mara, which is a national park game preserve. So it's the northern half of the Serengeti. And when we were there, we saw the wildebeest migration. So there are about 150,000 wildebeest moving over this giant prairie with absolutely no blockades, no uh, fences. They were just massive, magnificent kind of migration. And these wildebeest were following the blooming of the prairie grass. So the prairie grass was about this tall. It was started to bloom. So the wildebeest would eat the top portion of this grass. 
And immediately following on the wildebeest was a bunch of zebras. So they would follow and they would eat the middle part of this grass because it was like hay, I guess. So they were just waiting for the wildebeest to get the top part off so they could go at the middle part. And then after them come these little Elon deer that are like really small, like miniature deer. And they were able to then eat the small shoots on the bottom of the ground that were exposed from the zebras that had eaten the middle part of the grass. Okay, now, if you were to ask an evolutionary biologist, they would probably have an explanation um, regarding how these different species evolved together, that there's a symbiotic relationship between these species and so on and so forth. However, we can also see, I could see in this example, the fact that the God had indeed designed this wisely, that there was behind all of the evolution and the different scientific explanations or above them, there was also the ability with the eyes of wisdom to see that God had directed the created world in this way. So there is this ability to see, to experience what it means that God created the world and what it means that God created the world wisely in an ordered way. We can see the order and experience the order of the world in this manner. But it takes wisdom, eyes of wisdom, to be able to actually see and experience that. So if we talk about wisdom as a matter of sight, it then follows that in order to exercise wisdom, to have these eyes for seeing, we actually have to look. It's for human beings to cooperate with God's gift of wisdom by actually using it, by actually looking to see God's purpose, to look for it, God's plan in the world as it unfolds. There is, I think, no better way to do that than to look at and read regularly the Holy Scripture. If we go to one of the most important teachings of the church about the Bible, about Scripture, this comes to us from the Second Vatican Council. It's called the Word of God. It's a document written by the church called the Word of God, Dei Verbum. And in the very beginning of this document, it says that in his goodness and wisdom, God chose to reveal himself and make known to us the hidden purposes of his will. And he did this, it goes on to say, so that human beings could have life with God, could have happiness with God in eternity. So God chose to reveal himself to human beings in his wisdom. His wisdom is the source of letting human beings know his plan and purpose in the world. It unfolds this plan and purpose according to a well-ordered uh, a well-ordered sequence, a well-ordered plan, that there is in the scripture a record of this plan and purpose of salvation. So we have in the scripture a source of wisdom. We can read it and we can see, we can see God's plan and purpose unfolding. An example of this, if you read 
the Old Testament, I recommend it uh, as an Old Testament scholar. Um, there is a, a series of books that detail the history of Israel from Deuteronomy to 2 Kings, okay? Now, again, if you go through and look at all of the events, if you study all of the events and read about them, about how this king or that king did something wrong, about these and those battles, you can study them as a historian, scrutinize them, and you can learn about different events that happened in the course of Israel's history. Or, if you look with the eyes of wisdom and read these historical books, you can receive the message through them that there is a plan and purpose of salvation that is coming to fruition through the course of all of these books. That God gave his people a covenant, made them a nation, and that when they turn away, God in his love allowed them to be punished so that they would turn back to him. And that in the fullness of time that God would send his only son, Jesus Christ, to fulfill the promises of salvation from of old. The whole sweep of this history, you have to look at with the eyes of wisdom if you're going to understand, if you're going to be able to see God's plan and purpose unfolding through the centuries. This is the stuff of wisdom as it is written down in the record of the Holy Scriptures. So moving on then, that's um, the, the importance of exercising wisdom by reading the Bible, reading the Scripture. We can look at more specifically then instances or places where the Bible speaks about wisdom directly. The biblical vision of wisdom, as I would call it. And the first lesson that we learn here is that wisdom indeed is practical. As human beings, you can think of it this way, we are meant to incarnate wisdom. In our actions, we make wisdom, divine wisdom, visible. One of the places that I would uh, turn to here is in the uh, 31st chapter of Exodus. So in Exodus 31, 1 to 6, we are looking at the situation, the, the context here, where the people are in the wilderness. They have received the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And now God is giving them instructions on how to build the tabernacle, how to build the place where God will be worshipped, where he will appear to them in glory, where he will accompany them as they wander through the desert. He gives six chapters of instructions. He gives all kinds of intricate details about the components of this tabernacle, the kinds of thread, the kinds of different leather that are going to be used, all of the gold, all of these different appurtenances that are going to be there in the tabernacle. But the question that Moses asks how are we going to build this? And this is the response. The Lord says to Moses, I have singled out Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with a divine spirit of wisdom and understanding and knowledge in every craft, in the production of embroidery, in making things of gold, silver, and bronze, 
in cutting and mounting precious stones, in carving wood, and in every other craft. So we see that God both asks for this very ornate tabernacle to be created, but then he also gives divine wisdom and skill to the people to be able to actually do it. So wisdom is practical, and we see, secondly, that God is the giver of wisdom in this passage. God gives the particular practical wisdom to people to be able to fulfill his will, to be able to do what he commands. The second lesson is that there is something called acquired wisdom. That wisdom is, yes, practical, but then it is also sometimes a matter of human acquisition. That is to say, human beings strive for wisdom and they can acquire it on their effort to a degree. What I mean is they can observe the world and they can act in accord with what they see. So we see something uh, in the book of Proverbs. This is a great example of the kind of acquired wisdom that people can and do uh, gain through their experience of living in the world. This book, um, by the way, is something of what we would call in biblical studies an instruction, uh, a book of instruction. It's styled as instruction and the, the kind of teaching of parents to their children. So parents would want their children to be the types of people who would be able to grow up and act well in any kind of situation. So the, the writer of Proverbs styles this book as something that his mother and his father are teaching him, giving him advice in many different situations. So it highlights the importance of listening, listening to your elders, listening to those who have come before you to gain their wisdom, to gain their experience of the world, what is good to do, what is not good to do. This could be in something as simple as the best way to harvest grapes, or it could be something as complicated as the best way to lead a people and organize a society. In any one of these examples, though, it's fundamentally based on the importance of listening. The purpose, of course, is to build or instill character, to build or instill the kind of habits for action that people will need to be successful in life. And the example that I would point to here is Proverbs uh, 26, 4 to 5. So Proverbs chapters 26, verses 4 to 5. It's a kind of conundrum that we have. There is, the first proverb is this, do not answer fools according to their folly, lest you too become like them. The second proverb is, answer fools according to their folly, lest they become wise in their own eyes. So you're told to do two opposite things, back to back. Do not answer fools, and then answer fools, and you're given two different reasons. If you ever uh, need proof that the Bible contradicts itself, there it is, right? No, just kidding. Okay, I just wanted to make sure that you're still listening. Okay, 
what is going on here? The first one, do not answer fools according to their folly. The problem is that when you're young and you're impressionable and you get into these types of debates, sometimes you can actually be sucked into foolishness. But on the other hand, there are examples of times or there, there are certain occasions in life where you don't want to let someone simply go off in error and live a foolish life. You might at certain times have an answer that could turn someone away from their foolishness to wisdom. The question, of course, is how to know when to do which of these two proverbs, when to act on which of these proverbs. And the answer is if you're wise, you'll see. If you're wise, you will actually know when to do one or when to do the other. It's the process of becoming wise that is a matter of reading these Proverbs, thinking about them, and then pondering when it is good to act on one or the other. There is an acquisition, a process of deepening in wisdom, of acquiring wisdom, so that you see in your daily life when to act this way or that way. These aren't ironclad rules. They're not laws that you must do in every situation. These are proverbs that are good to think about and sometimes to act on them, but other times not. So wisdom can be a daunting kind of challenge, how to act on wisdom in one's life. And the answer that the Bible gives us is to go through and study and meditate upon these day and night, that we would engage in the constant reading and meditation on the Bible in order to know and to see when to do one thing or another so that we can always act with wisdom. A second point about this kind of practical wisdom is that it is founded on observing the world. So the Bible actually directs us to look at what is called the book of nature. We can study, as the example of, uh, that I mentioned about uh, when I was in Kenya, we can study, we can look at the book of nature and learn something about the God who created it, but we can also learn something about how we are to act. One of my favorite examples of this is in the sixth chapter of the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs 6, 6 to 11. The mother saying to her child, Go to the ant. Study her ways and learn her wisdom. For though she has no chief, no commander or ruler, she procures, she procures her food in the summertime, stores up her provisions in the harvest. How long, O oh lazy one, will you lie there? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest? Then poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like a brigand. You can imagine a mother chastising her son for not being very industrious, being lazy. She wants her son to study the ants, to learn from them. The ants are wiser than my son, she says. Why? Because they are preparing for the winter time, but my son is not. It's a simple lesson, but it's one that we can look at and realize that there are lessons to be learned from the book of nature that we can look upon it and understand better how we are to interact with this well-ordered world. 
These are some examples of the way in which wisdom is practical. It involves very much a matter of human action. How we are supposed to act in our daily lives can eventually redound to wisdom. But there is, of course, a limit to this. These people, the the Israelites, thought that one could really get along well simply by looking at the created world and acting in accord with the order so that you could notice what times were good to plant and what times were good to harvest. You could interact with the created order in such a way to always live life well, to always experience plenitude, to always experience good things. There was an overconfidence in the human ability to acquire wisdom in this way. And so there is an answer to that overconfidence in the book of Ecclesiastes. So the book of Ecclesiastes is written in much the same form as the book of Proverbs, but it has a few important points for us to consider as well. The first comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 14, basically saying that you can't know the future perfectly. No one knows what is to happen, and who can tell anyone what the future holds? This point is simply to say we can look at the world as much as we want, but we can never perfectly predict the future. And the conclusion that he has is this. No one can anticipate the time of disaster like fish taken in a cruel net and like birds caught in a snare, so mortal humans are snared at the time of calamity when it suddenly falls upon them. His point is simple. You cannot prevent disaster by wisdom, by acquiring wisdom in the world, human wisdom in the world. We cannot observe the created order to such a degree that we can act perfectly at all times so as to avoid any bad thing from happening to us. We cannot act in accord with this world in such a way that we can always be able to control all of the outcomes of our actions. There is always going to be an unknown involved. And so he likens human beings to fish being taken up in a cruel net. They're there in the stream. You can see them as the fishermen. They're completely oblivious to the net that is going to snatch them out of the water and make them their dinner. So this is the pessimistic, I think we can agree it's somewhat pessimistic, description of the human condition by this author. And again, he's writing this in order that we don't become overconfident in our own human ability to acquire wisdom and to control our own lives by observing the created world and studying wisdom. This brings me then to perhaps, if we want to think of it this way, the the second uh, main point about wisdom in the Bible. The first is that wisdom is always practical. It's quite practical in nature. Wisdom is also then, secondly, speculative. It is contemplative. It's meant to guide us in our meditation on God and our relationship with God. And the place that I would point to here is 
both Proverbs 8 and the book of Sirach chapter 1. In these chapters, we learn about how God has created the world with wisdom and that God himself is the giver of wisdom. God is the one who is the source of all wisdom and who gives wisdom to all people and all things. So here we have in these two chapters, both Proverbs 8 and Sirach chapter 1, a description of God as the source of all wisdom, the one who has created wisdom. Sirach says, all wisdom is from the Lord and it remains with him forever. There is but one who is truly wise and awesome, seated upon his throne. He is the Lord. It is he who created wisdom, saw her and measured her, poured her forth upon all his works, upon every living thing. He lavished her on those who loved him. So again, to repeat myself, God is the source of all wisdom. And God is the one who pours wisdom out on the entire world. Every created thing has wisdom within it. This is the quality that, that every created thing is good, that it corresponds to, in some way, shape, or form, the divine will, and that there's a vestige of God in it. So in looking at the created world, if we meditate on it, if we look at it, we can learn something about God. Again, that God indeed designed the world to be orderly, to be good, that he designed it for human beings to live in and to come to know him in and through it. That's one of the lessons that we learn here from this, from this book of wisdom, the, the book of Sirach. <clears throat> Excuse me. There is another important lesson that we learn as well, which is that God is the one who determines the measure of wisdom. So this is a place where it's not always going to be um, perfectly concordant with our modern sensibilities. God is not an egalitarian when it comes to wisdom. God has made some people wiser than others. Some people have a deeper and bigger share in wisdom than others. They're able to see more profoundly and deeply God's plan and purpose in the world. This is all according to God's gratuitous bounty, his will. He has, deci he has decided this and organized it according to his plan. Given all of this, there is a response that is required on our part, and we read about this response in various places. One of the best is the Book of Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 7. The first response that we are to always go to as people who have been promised this gift of wisdom is to pray for it. The first response to these truths about God as the source of all wisdom, who bestows wisdom on everything, is that we are to pray for wisdom. In chapter 7, these are the words of Solomon, King Solomon, the great wise king of Israel. He says, I prayed and prudence was given me. I pleaded and the spirit of wisdom came to me. I preferred wisdom to scepter and throne and I deemed riches nothing in comparison with her, nor did I liken any priceless gem to her. 
So Solomon recognizes the incomparable value of wisdom, but he also asks God for wisdom because he realizes that this wisdom is a path to a relationship with God. He says that wisdom leads into the understanding of the mind of God and chooses his works. Wisdom leads us through this sight into the very life of God. It is a mystical experience by which we can know and love God in and through our human mind and heart. This is what wisdom does for us. And finally, he, in this prayer, recognizes that this has nothing to do with him. This has everything to do with God. Knowing that I could not otherwise possess wisdom unless God gave her, and this too was wisdom, to know whose gift she is, I went to the Lord and I besought him and said with all my heart, give me wisdom, the consort at your throne, and do not reject me from among your children. So he, this Solomon figure, knows that it is God and God alone who gives wisdom. And in this beautiful prayer that goes all the way from wisdom seven to wisdom nine, he pleads with God to continue to bestow wisdom upon him. If prayer is the first response that we should always have when thinking about wisdom and exercising wisdom, then the second is study meditation. There are plenty of places, but one of the best, I think, is uh, Sirach, the book of Sirach, chapter 39, verses 1 to 11. This scribe who lived in ancient Israel describes his own life of study and prayer, and this is what he says. The person who devotes himself to the study of the law of the Most High explores the wisdom of all the ancients, his care is to rise early in the morning to seek the Lord, his maker, to petition the Most High. He opens his mouth in prayer. He asks pardon for his sins. If then it pleases the Lord Almighty, he will be filled with the spirit of understanding. He will direct his knowledge and his counsel as he meditates upon God's mysteries. And then he will show the wisdom of what he has learned to others and glory in the law of the Lord's covenant. So, this wisdom that the scribe has comes not only from prayer, although that is the first response, but also by studying the law of the Most High, the scripture. He is saying that he reads the scripture every day, early in the morning, studying it, applying it to his own life. And then finally, he takes the insights that he learns and he tries to give them to others. So there is both the wisdom of receiving from God this ability to see his plan and purpose. But then there's also a matter of wisdom that he tries to give this to others, to help others see what he sees. That is an, another key component of wisdom according to the Bible. It's not simply to hoard wisdom for ourselves, but to help others to see wisdom as well. Finally, then, this is a lifelong process that is never completed. The study, the prayer, 
This is, these are both actions that are meant to accompany a person each and every day into their old age. There are plenty of metaphors that are used to describe this. The metaphors of planting and harvesting, metaphors of hunting, metaphors of marrying wisdom. They're scattered throughout all of these books, but they all point very clearly to the fact that we are never done in our quest for wisdom. As I close then this talk, I would just point to a couple of good exemplars of wisdom from the Bible. I think the, the first example, the first exemplar is chapter 38, comes from chapter 38 of the book of Sirach. This scribe, he commends to the people that he's talking to that they would go to, uh, when they get sick, he asks them, to go to a physician, to honor a physician for his services. For indeed, God has created the, phys the physician because all healing is from the Most High. A physician's skill will put up his head. The Lord created remedies out of the earth and a prudent man won't ignore them. The apothecary makes a compound with these herbs. By them, the physician takes away pain. And it was he that gave the skill to human beings in order to be glorified in his marvelous deeds. So the reason why I point to this is it, I think, exemplifies the fact that we are supposed to pray to God for healing, but then we're also supposed to go to the doctor. It's a simple point, but sometimes it's one that gets, even still today, lost on people, that there is a complementarity to the fact that we pray to God for our own good because God is in charge. God is the sovereign Lord of creation. But at the same time, God has made secondary causes and instruments, physicians, healing herbs. We are supposed to avail ourselves of them as well as, indeed, praying to God. The final example, then, that I would point to comes from the New Testament, Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 28. I think it's apropos for us to consider this one and the fact that it is Advent, we are gearing up for Christmas. This is the account of our Lord being brought into the temple by Mary and Joseph to be presented to the Lord. And when he is brought into the temple precinct, he is encountered by Anna the prophetess. So, when the days were completed for their purification according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph took Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. There was a prophetess there, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived seven years with her husband after her marriage, and then as a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there day and night with fasting and prayer. And coming forward at that very time, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. What I want to point out here is that Anna, the prophetess, is a model of wisdom. Why do I say that? She is there preparing. She doesn't know exactly what it's for. She's there in the temple precinct day and night, worshiping and fasting. She's patient. We learn that she 
lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. At that time, people would typically get married between 14 and 16 years old, and women would. So we can put her age at the time of her widowhood. Uh, that, that would be approximately, um, doing math, 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 uh, 21 to 23 years old. That means that she is a widow for over 60 years. She is engaging in this behavior of worship, fasting and prayer in the temple precinct for over 60 years. She's waiting. She's preparing herself. A little bit of ancient Near Eastern background here. There was a belief and an understanding that by adjoining oneself to the sanctuary, to a holy place, you could dispose yourself to receiving messages from the gods. And that is adopted in this view of the holy place of Israel, the temple, that one could predispose oneself to receive from God messages, that one could receive from God understanding through prayer by the physical proximity to God in the temple precinct. So she's there preparing herself for over 60 years. And then we learn at that very moment, when Christ is brought in, she sees Christ and then begins to praise God. She sees a baby being brought into the temple precinct. She probably saw thousands of babies being brought into the temple precinct over those 60 years. But she sees that this one is the culmination of salvation. How does she see that? Is there a glow around Jesus? Like all of those paintings? Probably not. She sees because she has been given the gift of wisdom, deep prophetic wisdom, because she's been preparing for all of those years. And finally, she proclaims this wisdom. She speaks about this to all who are awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. She isn't going to let anyone in the temple precinct get away without her telling them that this is the day of our salvation. It has come to fruition through the Christ child. This is the Messiah. She's speaking about this to all who are listening to her. She is sharing her wisdom with others. That is why I think that this prophetess Anna is a, a perfect example, especially in this period where we're preparing for Christmas, as an exemplar of wisdom. So with that, I will conclude my talk in just commending you to, as you maybe finish out this season of Advent, to read your Bible, to always ask God every day to deepen his wisdom in your mind and heart. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.